Hello, and welcome to the Entertaining Abstracts Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and we've got a great show for you guys again today. We're going to jump right into the first article. Archaeologists uncover 5,000-year-old tavern beer recipe on a tablet, and CBS News provided this article. Archaeologists in southern Iraq have uncovered the remains of a tavern dating back nearly 5,000 years. They hope this will illuminate the lives of ordinary people in the world's first cities. The U.S. Italian team made the find in the ruins of ancient Lagash, northeast of the modern city of Nasiria which was already known to have been one of the first urban centers of the Sumerian civilization of ancient Iraq. The team from the University of Pennsylvania and the University of Pisa discovered the remains of a primitive refrigeration system, a large oven, benches for diners, and around 150 serving bowls. Fish and animal bones were found in the bowls alongside the evidence of beer drinking, which was widespread among the Sumerians. So we've got the refrigerator, we've got the hundreds of vessels ready to be served, benches where people would sit, and behind the refrigerator is an oven that would have been used for cooking food, according to the project director. What we understand this thing to be is a place where people, regular people, would come to eat, and that is not domestic. We call it a tavern because beer is by far the most common drink, even more than water for the Sumerians. She said, noting that in one of the temples excavated in the area, there was a beer recipe that was found on a cuneiform tablet. The world's first cities developed in what is now southern Iraq, where agriculture surpluses from the domestication of the first crops allowed the emergence of new social classes not engaged directly in food production. The Lagash area, close to the confluence of the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, was dubbed as the Garden of the Gods by the ancients for its fertility and gave rise to a string of Sumerian cities dating back to the early dynastic period. Lagash was one of the important cities of southern Iraq, according to Iraqi archaeologist Baker Azab Wali. Its inhabitants depended on agriculture, livestock, fishing, but also the exchange of goods. Pittman said the team was eager to learn more about the occupants of the people who used the tavern in its heyday around 2700 BC. This will throw new light on the social structures of the first cities. Detailed analysis would need to be carried out on the samples taken during the excavations the team completed in November. There is so much that we do not know about this early period of the emergence of cities, and that is what we are investigating. We hope to be able to characterize the neighborhoods and the kinds of occupations of the people who lived in this big city who were not the elite. Most of the work done at the other sites focuses on kings and priests, and that is all very important, but the regular people are also important. In December, CBS Philadelphia reported the Penn Museum helped to make a historic find in northern Iraq, an Assyrian palace in the ancient city of Nimrud. An Iraqi excavation team worked with researchers at the University of Pennsylvania Museum to find the palace. Experts say the most significant artifacts include sculptures in their original positions. The palace was located about 20 miles south of Mosul and dates back 2,800 years. That is pretty fascinating indeed. Another article that is somewhat related is elaborate underground embalming workshop discovered in Saqqara. Jennifer Nalwiki wrote this article. 
Archaeologists in Saqqara have finally identified the many embalming ingredients used to mummify the dead in ancient Egypt. They also deciphered how those different ingredients, many of which came from distant lands, were used. In 2016, an international team of archaeologists discovered the underground embalming workshop near the Pyramid of Unas, south of Cairo. The complex of rooms has approximately 100 ceramic vessels dating to the 26th dynasty of Egypt, which was 664 to 525 BC. While many of the vessels had inscriptions identifying their contents, some of the embalming substances remained a mystery. Now, in the first of its kind study published in February in the Journal of Nature, researchers have used chemical analysis of the resins coating the vessels to identify the contents. Upon closer examination, the researchers discovered that certain vessels were labeled with embalming instructions, such as how to put it in the head or bandage embalming with it, while others included the names of the different substances found inside. By analyzing the residues coating the pottery, they identified ingredients in 31 of the vessels coming from locations near and far. Those included resin from the elemi tree, which is native to the Philippines, resin from the pistacia, a genus of flowing plants in the cashew family that grow in parts of Africa and Eurasia, as well as beeswax. The facility's layout revealed the meticulousness of the embalmers, with one room being used to clean the bodies and the other for storage and for the actual embalming. When the researchers compared the different identified mixtures with the inscriptions on the label, they found several inaccuracies. For one, the ancient Egyptian word for entui, which translates to myrrh or incense, was often mislabeled. In fact, none of the analyzed residues represent a single substance, but rather a blend of multiple ingredients, according to the statement. We were able to identify the true chemical makeup of each substance, say the study authors. Often embalming vessels became contaminated over time as well, but in this case, they're not. A lot of the vessels in this case were in very good condition. However, not all of the contents found in the workshop were used to preserve the dead. Instead, they likely helped to remove unpleasant smells and prepared the bodies for embalming by reducing moisture on the skin. It's fascinating the chemical knowledge of the embalmers had since they knew bare skin would immediately be endangered by microbes. They also knew what substances were antifungal and could be applied to help stop the spread of bacteria on the skin. Most surprising was that the embalmers relied on elaborate trade networks that crisscrossed the globe to source ingredients not native to the region. We were surprised to find tropical resins. This shows that the industry of embalming was a driving trade and that ingredients were transported from large distances. What we're learning goes far beyond what we know about embalming. Next article, stockpile of 2,000-year-old gemstones found in Roman bathhouse drain. And Jennifer Nelwicki wrote this article as well. Archaeologists recently uncovered a stockpile of 2,000-year-old glittering gemstones clogging the drain of a Roman bathhouse near Hadrian's Wall in Carlisle, England. The 30 engraved semi-precious stones, known as intaglios, likely dropped out of the ring settings worn by bathers who took to the waters sometime during the 2nd and 3rd century AD. It's incredible, say archaeologists who led the excavation. It's caught everyone's imagination. They were just falling out of people's rings who were using the baths because they were set with a vegetable glue and in the hot and sweaty bathhouse they just fell out of the ring settings. 
authors of the study described the intaglios as minuscule, the smallest measured about 0.2 inches in diameter or about 5 millimeters, while the largest topped out at about 0.6 inches or 16 millimeters. The craftsmanship to engrave such tiny things is absolutely incredible. During the excavation, archaeologists discovered an amethyst depicting the Roman goddess Venus holding a flower or a mirror, as well as a piece of jasper with a satyr lounging languidly in a bed of rocks, according to the Guardian. You don't find such gems at low-status Roman sites, so they're not something that would have been worn by the poor. Researchers think the bathers most likely had no clue that they lost their precious adornments until after they dried off and headed home. And even then, they wouldn't be surprised if they thought the disappearance was the result of petty theft rather than accidental loss. Bathhouse theft was so rampant that Roman baths elsewhere in England displayed cursed tablets that wished revenge on the perpetrators of such crimes. One such tablet read, so long as someone, whether slave or free, keeps silent or knows anything about it, he may be accursed in blood and the eyes and every limb and even have all intestines quite eaten away if he has stolen the ring. In addition to the intaglios, archaeologists uncovered 40 women's hairpins and 35 glass beads during the excavation. <laughs> that is absolutely incredible. Can you imagine being the one to discover all of those stones? That would have been really, really cool. Next article. Tree study shows how drought may have doomed the ancient Hittite empire. And Will Dunham wrote this article. Around 1200 BC, human civilization experienced a harrowing setback with a near simultaneous demise or diminishment of several important empires in the Middle East and Eastern Mediterranean region, an event called the Bronze Age Collapse. One of the mightiest to perish was the Hittite Empire, centered in modern Turkey and spanning parts of Syria and Iraq. Researchers on Wednesday offered new insight into the Hittite collapse with an examination of trees alive during the time, showing three consecutive years of severe drought that may have caused crop failures, famine, and political societal disintegration. The Hittites, with their capital Hattusa, situated in central Anatolia, were one of the world's great powers across five centuries. They became the main geopolitical rivals of ancient Egypt during its glittering New Kingdom period. In pre-modern times, with none of our infrastructure and technology, the Hittites controlled and ruled a huge region for centuries despite a myriad of challenges of space, threats from neighbors, and entities incorporated into their empire, and despite being centered in a semi-arid region according to researchers. Scholars have long pondered what triggered the fall of the Hittites and broader collapse that also devastated kingdoms in Greece, Crete, and the Middle East, while weakening the Egyptians. Hypotheses have included war, invasion, and climate change, but this new study offers some clarity about the Hittites. The researchers examined long-lived juniper trees that grew in the region at the time and eventually were harvested to build a wooden structure southwest of Ankara around 748 BC. This would have been the burial chamber for a relative of Pyrogea's King Midas, who, legend holds, turned anything he touched into gold. 
the tree offered a regional paleoclimatic record in two ways. Patterns of its annual tree ring growth with narrow rings indicating dry conditions and the ratio of two forms of isotopes or carbon in the rings revealed the tree's response to water availability. They detected a gradual shift to drier conditions between the 13th century BC into the 12th century BC. More importantly, both lines of evidence indicate three straight years of severe drought in 1198, 1197, and 1196 BC, which coincided with the known timing of the empire's dissolution. There was very likely a near-complete crop failure for three consecutive years. The people must have had food stores that would get them through a single year of drought, but when hit with three consecutive years, there was no food to sustain them. This would have likely led to the collapse of the tax base, mass desertion of the huge Hittite military, and likely a mass movement of people seeking survival. The Hittites were also challenged by not having a port or other easy avenues to move food into the area. Hattusa, enclosed by a monumental stone wall and with gates adorned with lions and sphinxes, was burned and abandoned. Texts written on clay tablets using the cuneiform script common in the region detailed the Hittite society, politics, religion, economics, and foreign affairs. These went silent. Less than a century earlier, the Hittites under King Mawatali II and the Egyptians under Pharaoh Ramses II fought the famous and inclusive Battle of Kadesh in 1274 BC, waged with thousands of chariots in Syria, and subsequently reached history's first recorded peace treaty. I think this study really shows the lessons we can learn from history. The climate changes that are likely to occur for us in the next century will be much more severe than those the Hittites experienced, according to researchers. And it begs the question, what is our resilience? How can we withstand? That is really, really interesting. Next article, along that same vein, trash mounds of 13-year-old fabrics, still vividly colored, are unearthed in Israel. And Aspen Pluto wrote this article. Filled with food waste, junk mail, and wrappers, our trash speaks volumes about how we live day to day. While the items people discard have changed over the centuries, the revealing nature of human trash has not. That's why a team of archaeologists hoping to understand the lives of ancient traders decided to find and excavate as well as analyze trash deposits along Silk Road routes in Israel. Digging into the desert ground at Erevah, the researchers uncovered a treasure trove of trash, according to a news release from the Israel Antiquities Authority. The trash mounds contain cotton and silk fabrics likely imported from China and India about 1,300 years ago. Based on the location, features, and age of the fabrics, archaeologists concluded that the Erevah site was along a branch of the Silk Road's network of trade routes. The Silk Road refers to a network of trade routes stretching from China across the Middle East and into North Africa and Europe. Goods like silks, spices, tea, and porcelain were traded along the network from about 130 BC until 1453 AD. The trade network also facilitated the spread of ideas, cultures, and religions. The garbage in Erevah included silks from China, decorated fabrics from India, and cotton textiles from India and Nubia, a region in Sudan. The release said, these fabrics are still vividly colored according to the photos. One fabric fragment had a section of red, blue, and gold stripes running through the center. Archaeologists attributed some of the weaving techniques to Iran and some of them to central India. 
other faded blue fabric boasts a gold design with checkerboard stripes and spears. The variety and richness of the fabrics indicated a high demand for imported luxury goods in the region. Archaeologists also found leather, clothing, and hygienic items buried in the trash heap. Photos show one piece of fabric with thick red and blue stripes. The finds illuminated the material culture and day-to-day lives of the region's ancient residents and traders. Exploring the Israeli Silk Road is an ongoing project for Guy Bar Oz, Roy Galili, Orbit Shamir, Berit Heldebrandt, and Nofar Shamir, according to the team's project website. Their research aims to better understand the movements of textile goods, traders, and consumers by focusing on often neglected smaller settlements. Araba, also known as Araba, or Arba, is a region about 145 miles southeast of Jerusalem and along the Israel-Jordan border. Next article. Elusive sea butterflies mysteriously flocked to Israel coast after 29 years. Let's take a look. And Irene Wright wrote this article. The Gulf of Aqaba, off the southernmost tip of Israel, has some new residents. For the first time in 29 years, the sea is filled with millions of tiny, translucent ocean snails called sea butterflies. In a rare spectacle, millions of the sea butterflies have flocked to the Israeli coast, according to the Israel Nature and Parks Authority. But why are they here? Sea butterflies are part of the same taxonomic order as mollusks, except they have extra fleshy wings, giving them their name. These creatures have a pair of butterfly-like fins, according to marine scientists. Expanding in the shell, they extend into the water that increases their surface area, which allows it to float and swim, actively using their fins. Officials say that sea butterflies are tiny, sometimes as small as a few millimeters across, and they feed on smaller plankton, trapping them in a mucus net that the sea butterflies release into the water. A group of sea butterflies this size was last seen in 1994, and the Nature and Park Authority inspectors told them this was the first time in many Israeli lives that the creatures have been present in the Gulf. It's always fun to see the Gulf of Aqaba come to life. You are warmly invited to jump into the cool water and experience an extraordinary experience for yourself. The butterflies are in every corner of the Gulf. Officials have been unable to determine what made the sea butterflies swarm, but they will continue to study them for as long as they are present. Next article, and this is somewhat related, but why San Diego's waves turn bright pink. And Lee Cohen wrote this article. The unusual blue waters of the Pacific Ocean off the coast of San Diego are looking quite different, at least for a while. Bright fuchsia-colored waves were seen crashing along the shore the last week of January, and researchers have revealed what's causing the sudden and dramatic color change. It's science. The Scripps Institution of Oceanography is actually responsible for the temporary color change at Torrey Pine State Beach. Researchers are conducting a study called Plumes in Near Shore Conditions, or PINC, to learn more about how freshwater interacts with saltwater near the shore. By releasing a non-toxic pink dye into nearby Los Penasquitos Lagoon coastal estuary, researchers say they were able to monitor what happened to the water when small-scale plumes end up in the surf zone along the beach where the waves break. This science, Scripps said, will provide a first-ever view of how freshwater mixes with the more dense ocean water within waves. 
That information, they said, is critical for the understanding about how sediments, pollutants, larvae, and other materials disperse through shorelines. The pink plume in this study was monitored with various instruments from land, sea, and air. The dye being used posed no threat to humans, wildlife, or the environment, Scripps said, although civilians have been urged not to swim in the area due to the ongoing research. Scripps coastal oceanographer and study leader Sarah Giddings called the research a really unique experiment, as many previous studies on the subject matter have focused on large amounts of freshwater going into the ocean. They also chose Los Penasquitos Lagoon because it's a prime example of small plumes going into surf zones. We're bringing together a lot of different people with different expertise, and I think that's going to have some really great results and impacts. We will combine results from this experiment with older field studies and computer models that will allow us to make progress on understanding how these plumes spread. Giddings research takes a deep dive into how estuaries and the coastal ocean influence one another. Estuaries, NOAA explains, are delicate ecosystems that contain freshwater drained from land as well as salty seawater. They're also one of the most threatened ecosystems on Earth, as human activities have negatively impacted their overall health. Because these bodies of water filter out sediments and pollutants from water before flowing into the ocean, they're a vital component of health for marine life. According to the research project's website, Giddings and her team hypothesized that four things could potentially be happening to the freshwater as it interacts with ocean waves. It gets trapped in the surf zone and or escapes as freshwater plume, it stays within a certain parameter of the coastline, it escapes the surf zone through rip currents, or finally the waves mix the freshwater with the ocean next to the shore. Giddings' team is doing three die releases, the first of which was January 20th. Another release was planned somewhere between the end of the month and another in early February. During these releases, researchers put 15 gallons of the dye into the estuary as the tide level was falling. The researchers said the bright pink coloration was visible to the naked eye for several hours and small traces were able to be detected for about 24 hours after. The first experiment saw much success. Researchers said on their website, the dye revealed that the initial plume was trapped in the surf zone, that it was eventually carried south with some of the plume getting ejected from the surf zone. Next article. Woman mistakenly pronounced dead was found alive in a body bag, report says. And this article was written by Carrie Breen. An Iowa care facility is facing fines totaling $10,000 after mistakenly pronouncing a 66-year-old resident dead and having her transported to a funeral home where she woke up gasping for air. A new report from the Iowa Department of Inspections and Appeals released in February first reported the CBS affiliate KCCI detailed the series of events that led up to the woman being mistakenly pronounced dead. The unidentified resident, who had been at the Glen Oaks Alzheimer's Special Care Center since December 2021, was moved into hospice care at the facility on December 28th of 2022 because of senile degeneration of the brain. When hospice care comfort measures were taken, and over the course of several days, staff members recorded occurrences of diminished lung sounds and minor seizures. On January 3rd, 2023, the woman was pronounced dead at 6 a.m. after an employee identified as Staff C said she did not feel a pulse and found the resident not breathing at that time. The staff member notified a licensed practical nurse. The woman's family was alerted and a local funeral home was called. The funeral director arrived shortly after 7.30 a.m. 
With the assistance of another nurse identified as LPND, the resident was then placed in a body bag and it was zipped shut. The funeral director left the facility shortly thereafter, and at 8.26 a.m., employees at the Ann Kenny Funeral Home and Crematory unzipped the bag. They observed the resident's chest moving as she gasped for air. The funeral home then called 911 and the care facility. When EMS responded, they were able to record a pulse and breathing, but there was no eye movement and no verbal response. That same day, the resident was returned to the care facility. She passed away early in the morning of January 5th with her family at her side. We have been in close communication with the family of the resident. We are just completing the investigation by the Department of Inspections and Appeals regarding the matter, said the facility's executive director. We care deeply for our residents and remain fully committed to supporting their end-of-care life. All employees undergo regular training so they can best support end-of-care life and the death of our residents. The facility faces two state violations from the DIA, which could result in a $10,000 fine. Wow, that is really scary indeed. Next article, Irish Giant's body seized 140 years ago, despite his wishes, is finally off display. This article was written by Brendan Arasius. The skeletal remains of Charles Byrne, known as the Irish Giant, will be removed from display at a museum in England to respect his dying wishes, bringing an end to years of controversy. Byrne was an 18th century Irishman who became well known for his towering frame. A tumor in his pituitary gland triggered giganticism, a rare hormonal disorder which caused him to grow nearly eight feet tall, according to the Royal College of Surgeons in England. Toward the end of his life, he began exhibiting himself as the Irish giant to make a living, the Royal College stated. But before his death in 1783, he requested a burial at sea to prevent anatomists from seizing his remains. However, shortly after he died, John Hunter, a surgeon and anatomist, paid one of Burns' friends for his body. And several years later, his skeleton was put on display in a museum in downtown London. The skeleton was most recently on display at the Hunterian Museum, which is affiliated with the Royal College of Surgeons in England, but the museum's board of trustees decided to make a change. John Hunter and other anatomists and surgeons of the 18th and 19th centuries acquired many specimens in ways we would not consider ethical today, and which are rightly subject to review and discussion, the Royal College stated. So after more than a century during which thousands of spectators scrutinized his bones, Burns remains will be removed from display and placed in storage, honoring at least in part his final wishes. And one final article for the day, a 45-year-old biotech CEO may have reduced his biological age by at least five years through rigorous medical programs that cost up to $2 million a year, according to Bloomberg. And Lloyd Lee wrote this article. Brian Johnson is 45 years old, according to a new report, but his test results show he has the heart of a 37-year-old and the lungs of a young adult. Johnson is a biotech entrepreneur who hopes to gain nature's course of aging and have the organs and health of an 18-year-old by going through an intense data-driven experimental program he's called Project Blueprint. According to the recent Bloomberg profile of the CEO, Johnson could spend up to $2 million on his body this year, and there are early glimpses that show he may be on track to unlocking the secret to age reversal. 
Test results from doctors suggest that Johnson has the heart of a 37-year-old, the skin of a 28-year-old, and the lung capacity of an 18-year-old. The program is led by Oliver Zolman, a 29-year-old physician who calls himself the rejuvenation doctor and is supported by a team of more than 30 health experts. While it's still an experimental stage and is constantly being tweaked, the health program consists of an intense daily regimen of carefully curated supplements, meals, exercise, and a slew of body tests. Johnson wakes at 5 a.m. in the morning, for example, to start with two dozen medicines and supplements for all kinds of purported health benefits, lycopene, turmeric, zinc, and metformin to prevent bowel polyps and a small dose of lithium for brain health. Although there is some evidence that lithium can treat mental illness like bipolar disorder, there is scant evidence that it can rejuvenate cells or preserve memory. There's also the risk of lithium toxicity when taken in high doses. His meals, a mix of solid and soft foods, are vegan and restricted to 1,977 calories a day. He exercises daily with three high-intensity workouts a week and goes through blood tests, MRIs, and colonoscopies each month. What I do may sound extreme, but I'm trying to prove that self-harm and decay are not inevitable. His efforts in 2021 have amounted to what Johnson claims to be a world record for an age reversal of 5.1 years. Doctors say he has the gum inflammation of a 17-year-old and a device that tracks his rate of nighttime erections is like that of a teenager's. Epigenetic age is like an experimental measure, Zolman told Insider. It's kind of an easy way of doing all the direct measurements across all the organs. Zolman said that each organ has various markers that can be looked at to determine how organs compare to that of younger persons. For example, a marker for gums can be gum recession, which increases with age. You can compare Johnson's to the age of an 18-year-old in this way. Solman qualified that this is not evidence to say Johnson has reduced his age in every organ by five years. He added that there needs to be more long-term data that shows consistent reduction of the markers. Johnson hopes to encourage others to follow his data and medical-driven programming by turning his relentless pursuit of youthfulness into a competition. Recently, he started a website called Rejuvenation Olympics, which displays an epigenetic leaderboard ranking 1,750 people in the world who are fighting against Father Time. Johnson currently stands in first place. (laughs) Wow. Very interesting stuff indeed. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can shoot us an email. Our email address will be listed in the show notes for the episode, as well as each of the articles we have used for the show today. And please join us next time when we talk more about interesting abstracts. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye!